All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 26 this morning. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's going to seem familiar to you. This is another one of those cases of deja vu. You're going to feel like you've heard this story before somewhat. Except this time it involves Isaac and not Abraham. All right, chapter 26. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake." So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to, to me, seeing that you hate me and you have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly 
that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau, in verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you will just speak to our hearts the truth of this passage and, and help us apply it to our lives. We thank you for what you teach us in your word and how it does speak to us. We thank you for the power and the strength and the blessing that comes from that. So we just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Sounds familiar, right? Like we've read this before somewhere. And we have, but not with Isaac, right? It was with Abraham twice, right? The similarities are uncanny. Here's the thing. Isaac wasn't even born yet, right? When Abraham had these moments of weakness, right? When when Abraham lied about his wife being his sister. And yes, I know she was technically his sister. She was his half-sister. And uh, it was a half-truth, right? So people say, well, he really wasn't lying because it was a half-truth, right? Well, the quote Warren Wearsby, right? A half-truth has just enough fact in it to make it plausible and just enough deception to make it dangerous. So a half-truth said with intent to deceive is just a whole lie, is what it is. So yes, Isaac wasn't born yet when Abraham went down into Egypt back way back when we first met Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, which was a hundred years ago or more. And many years later in Genesis 20 when Abraham meets Abimelech. Isaac wasn't born yet. So where did Isaac learn this trick, right? Which is obvious to us. Well, we know how he learned this trick. His father taught it to him, right? He didn't just inherit it through his DNA, right? He doesn't have like these molecular scars on your DNA. You're you're not doomed to repeat the sins of your father, like as in if you have no choice about it. Um, you have a choice. They say that the sins of the father can go down to the second, third, and the fourth generation in the Bible. And what it's talking about when when it's referencing that is that if you continue to do the same exact sins of your father, they will continue to just go through all the generations. Somewhere in there, someone has to make a choice to stop doing the sins of their fathers, right? So you have choices to make that are your own, God judges each heart individually, right? Regardless of the sins of your father, regardless of the actions of one's parents, salvation is still a free gift through Jesus. It's offered to each person individually. You don't have to atone for your parents' sin or for your grandparents' sins or the sins of every patriarch or matriarch in your family tree, right? Yet the sins of one's parents undoubtedly can affect their children. Right? In many ways. And we're not going to get into them all. But one way, really simply, is that we teach them to our kids. Right? We teach our kids how to sin. We may not do it with like this great grievous intent, like, ah, I'm going to teach my kids how to be evil. 
right? But, but we do it sometimes even without thinking, with, with good intent, right? And they purposefully learn from us, right? They learn to sin from us. And it's not just from mom and dad. I don't want to lay all the you know, guilt on parents. They, they, they learn to sin from the world around them. They learn to sin, you know, from their grandparents. Shocker, say it isn't so. Right? Kids learn to sin from watching everyone else around them. They're like sponges. Kids soak everything up, all of it. And they reflect back to you an image of yourself. Right? You, so, you, sometimes you get mad at your kids for something they do, and then you realize, wait a minute, I, they learned that from me. Right? So Isaac was taught by Abraham. Right? Isaac became a chip off the old block. Isaac is now a son resembling his father, at least in his actions. Right? The analogy of a chip off the old block is, is to wood or to stone. Right? It's a chip that consists of the same material that it was taken from. Right? And that analogy dates back to Greek times. That analogy dates back to before Christ. They can find it in, you know, in, in documents before Christ. So Abraham, he schooled Isaac. And he schooled him with all good intentions. I have no doubt that Abraham wasn't malicious or wasn't thinking that, you know, I'm going to teach him how to cut corners and, and all this thing. Abraham was teaching him how to survive out here Right? with all the fatherly wisdom that he had. Right? And despite what you might think, you know, fatherly wisdom is not an oxymoron. Right? Fathers, do have, fathers do have wisdom. Right? We have a ton of wisdom. Often it's not in the area that you need, but we have a ton of wisdom. Right? We have a lot of well-intentioned wisdom. You know, I can make a joke about it, but the truth is that the importance of fathers cannot be overstated. I mean, there's 162 million men, they say, in the United States as of the last census. And they say 74 million of them are fathers. And they say 73% of the fathers are married and they live with all their kids. That is, all the kids who are still young enough to be at home or the adult kids who have never bothered leaving. Right? And it's been proven statistically and scientifically that kids raised in a stable two-parent home with a mom and dad, right, raised with a father, are more likely to handle life better because of the positive impact that a devoted and engaged father gives them. They have fewer behavioral issue, issues. They have greater self-esteem. They have fewer incidents of depression, etc. And so it's no wonder that today, in the world that we live in, that you know, through satanic inspiration, the world wants to make men women and women men, and they want to attack the nuclear family because they understand the importance and how powerful it is for a child to be raised in a family with a mom and a dad and a strong fatherly influence. Right? So being a father, you have to start thinking, well, what am I passing on to my children? What wisdom have I given my kids? You know, that they're going to be able to glean from and help them when they grow up and shape and mold them, right? Besides the baldness gene or whatever. What have I, you know, passed on, you know, to my kids? My sons have no, hopefully they didn't, they got their gene from someone else, right? 
what are some of the tricks of the trade? Because, you know, often as parents, we're, we try to help. We help them with your math. I always try to, try to show her how, you know, how we can get the answer by doing things a little bit differently. I mean, we don't have to work it out in long form and take 20 sheets of paper to figure out this problem. And we can look at it a different way, and you might be able to get there quicker. Right? So are we passing on good habits? Are we passing on bad habits? <laughs> to our kids, right? What fatherly wisdom are we instilling in our children? Because we're, like I said, dads are full of wisdom. Or we think we are, right? When we say things like, you know, measure twice, cut once. Yeah, we don't always follow it, but we say it. We say, measure twice, cut once, right? Buckle up, tell our kids, even if they're not in the car. Buckle up, you know, defensive driving. Drive like everyone else is an idiot, right? I mean, that's... Fatherly advice, drive like everyone else is an idiot. Early to bed, early to rise, penny saved is a penny earned. We're full of these nuggets. Right? Keep your, your head down and your eyes on the ball. It's another fatherly piece of wisdom. My grandfather used to tell that to me back in my golfing days. Right? Keep your, I always had to have the lifting my head before I was done swinging. My son Dixon is still the same. I took him golfing the other day to the range and was trying to teach him you know, how to swing the club. But you always want to see where that ball's going even before you've hit it. So you're always lifting your head up before you're done swinging, and then you either miss the ball entirely or you, you hit it off the toe. And the thing, all, Every one of his shots went, almost killed the neighbor right next to him, and the other, they all went that way. But we're full of this wisdom. Right? So Abraham and Isaac, they had 75 years together. 75 years. And you know that Abraham had to pass on some fatherly wisdom to Isaac. You know they spent time talking. So you know that Abraham probably told him about these things. Let me tell you about when I was, you know, 75. And I went on, there was a famine and I went on down into Egypt and it was a big mistake. You know, your mom and I, we didn't talk for days after that because I told everyone she was my sister. So he, he probably told him about these stories. Problem is, is that, like I said, we don't always pass on the best advice. Right? Sometimes we say things to our kids like, you know, hey, always stay in shape so that you can outrun the cops. Right? <laughs> you know, some of my favorite fatherly moments actually come from Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. He's like a model of the perfect father, if you read Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, because he just flat out lies to Calvin. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But, you know, Calvin will say something like, Dad, why do my eyes close when I sneeze? And his dad will say, well, if your eyelids weren't closed, then the force of the sneeze or the explosion would, would blow your eyes right out. And, and it would stretch the optic nerve, right? And your eyes would be flopping around. And you'd have to, like, point them around with, like this just to see where you could be going. And Calvin's like, that's gross, right? <laughs> How do you know so much, Dad? And he's like, well, it's all in the book you get when you become a father. And I've read that book, Right? And, and I have to say that I've said similar things like that to my kids when they ask me questions. I come up with this completely crazy answer that's, you know, it's not true at all, but it's fun. You know, much to my wife's chagrin. It's kind of like at the end of those Calvin and Hobbes comic strips when he says, you know, Calvin will say, I hope someday I grow up to be as smart as my dad. And then his mom will look at him and say, why? What did he tell you now? Right? That's pretty much what we get in our family. It's like, don't, you know, what did you tell the kids? What? Yeah. I was just telling them the truth. Sure you were. So Isaac's grown into this spitting image of his dad now. So as we see, Isaac has settled in the land of Gerar. And 
And now there's a famine. And this is the first, this is the second famine mentioned in the book of Genesis of three, right? And it's the first one in over a hundred years or so, hundred years roughly since the one that Abraham experienced. And this is the same area, you know, Abraham lived in this area too, back in, in Genesis chapter 20. And Gerar is, if you want to know a location of where that is there, it's between uh, the Gaza Strip and the Dead Sea. And it's closer to the Gaza Strip, this area. So this is Isaac experiencing his first famine, right? And the first thing he does, as we see from the very first part of the chapter, is he's going to go on down to Egypt. My dad told me when he went, when he experienced a famine, he went on down to Egypt. I'm, I'm not going to make the same mistakes as him, but I'm still going to, you know, I'm not going to do everything the way he did, but I'm still going to go on down to Egypt. Well, his dad set that bad example, right? It wasn't a smart choice for Abraham to make, but Isaac's going to imitate it. Isaac's going to make the same choice, right? But it seems like God going to head him off at the pass. Right? So, you know, it's like father like son. Isaac says, I'm going down. But then the Lord appears right away. I mean, he says, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Right, right away, the Lord just appeared to Isaac. The first time he's appeared to Isaac uh, since, you know, Abraham was going to uh, sacrifice him. So he appears to Isaac right off, right off the bat. He says, no, don't go down to Egypt. Listen, don't do it. What he's telling Isaac is, listen, if you go down to Egypt, you're going without me. I'm not going down there with you. However, if you stay here where I tell you to, I will be with you. Right? Stay here in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. Don't go down to Egypt. And then the Lord repeats all the promises that he told Abraham to Isaac, right? Which this is a fulfillment of what he said back in Genesis 17. Because in Genesis 17, if you remember, the Lord tells Abraham, he says, listen, but Sarah, your wife's going to bear a son. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So he's just fulfilling what he already told Abraham he was going to do. I'm going to establish this with your son Isaac. So now he's telling Isaac, he's establishing it with Isaac. Listen, all the promises that I made your father are are going to be established with you as well. I promised this to Abraham. So I'm establishing this, this with you. I'm doing this, he tells him, because of your father, Abraham. right? Because your father, Abraham, he obeyed my voice. He kept my laws. right? So he's telling Isaac, he's like, you want to be like your father? Then be like your father this way. Right? Be a chip off the old block in these things. Obey my voice, keep my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Right? Be like your father in this way. But don't follow his mistakes. Don't go down into Egypt. And if we were just to leave it there at verse 6, because at verse 6 it says, uh, Isaac settled in Gerar. If we were just to leave it there, that'd be a great story. Isaac was like, okay, all right, I'm not going to do that, Lord. Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. That was a mistake. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not going to, why was I going to go down to Egypt? That's a ridiculous thought. I was never going to do that. I'm going to settle right here in Gerar like you told me. You're going to bless me. You're going to be with me. You're going to multiply my descendants. This is great. I'm going to stay right here. If we left it right there, it would be a great, be a great ending. However, that's not where it ends, right? Oops, right? Isaac is going to follow, again, in his father's footsteps 
not in a good way. He is going to do this, right? It says, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. She is my sister. There's a quote that says, a smart person will make mistakes, but only a fool repeats those mistakes. Abraham was smart. He made mistakes. (laughs) Isaac's a fool, in a sense, by repeating them. Now, this is something that Abraham should have told Isaac. We don't know if he did or not, obviously, but he should have told him, listen, don't repeat my mistakes. Right? Don't do some of the foolish things I did. But he does. It's a moment of weakness. So he tells everyone that his wife, Rebecca, is his sister. Again, like father, like son. And he does this out of fear. Mind you, as we went over this with Abraham, it's a valid fear. It's a legitimate fear. It's a selfish fear, but it's a valid and legitimate fear. Because what he's worried about is that they're going to kill him to take his wife. And that's exactly what used to happen. Right? If you went in to another area and you had a beautiful wife and they knew it was your wife, they would kill you so they could take your wife. So they often would say, she's my sister. Right? She's not my wife. Now that only protected you. That didn't protect her. Right? Do you understand? They would still take her from you if they wanted to. But at least they wouldn't kill you now. So this fear was a valid fear, but it was a selfish fear because you were only protecting yourself. You were never protecting your wife. They could still take her, as they did with Abraham. They kept taking right, Sarah, and you always had to, you know, the God had to intervene to get her back. But the Lord told Isaac the same exact thing that he told Abraham. Right? He says, I will protect you. I will be with you. Don't fear. Right? But fear, that's what fear does. It makes us compromise. It makes us compromise our faith in so many different ways. Right? And then it says in verse 8 that Isaac kept this up a long time. We don't know how much a long time is. We don't know the exact how long it is. But in verse 8 it says, when he had been there a long time. So Isaac lived there and he kept the lie up this entire time. Long enough. Right? We don't know exactly how long it was, but it was long enough. Then one day we find that Peeping Tom Abimelech right, is looking out his window. It was more likely he was probably looking in a window. Right? But he was looking out his window. And it's, and it's just so you know, it's probably not the same Abimelech that, that Abraham made a covenant with because <clears throat> it's been a long time. And it's a, Abimelech is a title. It's not an actual name. Uh, the same with like, you know, his servants and stuff. They all have certain titles. So it you know it could be, but it, if it's been like seventy five years or a hundred years, probably not the same Abimelech, but still a descendant probably. The next in could have even been Abimelech's son for all we know. But he's he's peeping Tom Abimelech here, and he's looking out, and what does he see? It says he sees Isaac laughing with Rebecca. Now I just want to tell you in the Hebrew, laughing is a very kind and modest translation, right? Because the Hebrew word means making sport. Right? <clears throat> and I'll give you a hint, they weren't playing badminton. Right? So, so Abimelech figures it out. He sees them. They're making sport. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. You're not brother and sister. You're husband and wife. How come you lied to me? Right? Once again, God uses the pagan ruler, the pagan king, to rebuke Isaac for his lie. So he 
you know, Isaac repents. Oh, I was afraid you were going to kill me. Right? And, and then Abimelech warns everyone, Let's, listen, leave these two alone. Don't, don't touch his wife. If anybody touches her, I'm going to kill you. Right? So, and then it says, after that, that the Lord blesses Isaac. And Isaac sows in the land, and he reaps a hundredfold, which is a lot. Right? He does very well. Right? Which reminds me of Matthew thirteen twenty three that says when it's talking about the parable of the seeds and, and about the seed that lands on good soil. It says this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. Our lives can reap this as well. But in order for us to reap this in our lives, we have to repent and turn back to the Lord. That's what Isaac started reaping this and this blessing came upon him once Isaac repented of his lie. So the Lord blessed Isaac though. This is the thing you should see and make sure you understand. We did talk about this when we were going through with Abraham. The Lord blessed Isaac despite his failings. Right? Because the promises of the Lord were not contingent on Isaac being perfect or Isaac never sinning. The promise was based on God and who God was and had nothing to do with Isaac, right? Not one thing. It was based on the faithfulness of the Lord and the Lord only. And the Lord keeps his word even when we don't. So Isaac became rich and he was getting richer and more wealthy, just like Abraham as a matter of fact. Because you remember when Abraham had that moment of weakness and went on down to Egypt. When he came out of Egypt, he was wealthier than when he went in. And when Abraham lied about his sister again in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech, he got wealthier again because they paid him right for Sarah, thinking that she was his sister. So the Lord kept blessing Abraham despite Abraham's failings. The Lord is blessing Isaac despite Abraham's, despite Isaac's failings. Right? But there are, despite that, beside the blessing, there are also consequences. Sin has consequences. And there are consequences to Abraham's sin. That unfolded for years. And we saw that play out, for example, in the life of Lot. And how that hurt Lot's life and, and where Lot positioned himself after coming back out of Egypt with Abraham and the family. Right? So there are consequences to your sin. And there are consequences to Isaac's sin as well. Right? It says in verse 14, we see one of the consequences. It says he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Here's one of the consequences of his sin. The Philistines, who he was living the most, saw him get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, saw his herds and his flocks grow and grow and grow, and they started to envy him. And they also were filling in Abraham's wells. All the wells that Abraham had dug after Abraham's death and even now that Isaac was living in the land, Abraham's son, and he was getting wealthy and wealthy and wealthy and they weren't doing as well. I mean, they all were farming on the same land. They all used the same sun and the same rain. But Isaac was producing a hundredfold what they were. So they started filling in all of Abraham's wells. You need water. Right? You need water for your flocks and your herds. So then Abimelech, here's the other consequence, comes to Isaac and says, you have to leave. You have to leave. 
go away from us, for you are much mightier than we, which means you're too powerful. You're too numerous. It's the exact same thing the Pharaoh was worried about when, when the Israelites grew in Egypt, right? They were scared of the Israelites because they were too numerous. Well, it's the same thing that Abimelech says here. He says, go away from us. Leave. You're, you're, you're too mighty, right? So basically they kick him out. They send him away. They were scared of him. Now, the thing is, is that Isaac could have resisted. Isaac could have said, hey, listen, your predecessor, right, Abimelech the first, your father, whoever he was, he had a pact with my father, Abraham. And he told my father, Abraham, I can stay anywhere in this land I, I want. He told Abraham, stay, pick out anything, anywhere you want to be, stay there, live there. So I have the right to be here. You can't kick me out. I have the right to be here, right? It was back in Genesis chapter 20. He's, he could have, Isaac could have said, no, I'm going to stay here. What are you going to do about it? You're scared of me. You think I'm too mighty. I'm too powerful. This land, uh, you know, my, your father told my father. Like, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to stay. But that's not his response. That's not Isaac's response. So Isaac says, okay, I'll go. Right? I'll go. So he goes to the valley. Right? He depart, departs and settles in the valley. And he starts opening up the wells that they had filled in. Opening up Abraham's wells. And every time he opens up a well and digs down and finds water, then the Philistines show up, the natives in that area show up and go, hey, that's our well. That's our water. Right? Get away from us. So they leave. And they do it again. Dig another well. They find water. People come by, hey, that's our well. Can't take our well. And Isaac doesn't fight with them. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't start a war over this. He just moves on. Right? But he names the wells things like, um, you know, Essek, which means quarrel, and Sitna, which means strife. So he names the wells after the, you know, after the whole situation that arose around it, right? And finally, they get to another well that they, that they dig down and they find water. And uh, they don't quarrel with him about this well. And so he names that well Rehoboth because it means, uh, it means ample room in the Hebrew. And he says, uh, well, you know, the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. So basically, the Lord has given us a spot to be able to settle now. They're not going to quarrel with us about this well, right? And we shall be fruitful. And then Isaac goes up to Beersheba. And again, the Lord appears to Isaac. And, said, and the Lord tells him, again, reaffirming his promise with Isaac, he says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I'll multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac builds an altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord, which means he gives thanks to God. He worships the Lord. And he pitches his tent there, and they dig a well. This area, right, Isaac had already lived in, actually, once before, back in Genesis 22. And, uh, and this is the same place where Abimelech shows up to meet Abraham and make a covenant with Abraham. Right? And that's what happens again. Abimelech shows up, the new Abimelech. And then he, pretty much just what happened back in Genesis 21. 
And Abimelech shows up. You know, it says in Romans 12, verses 19 through 21, it says, never avenge yourselves. It says, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, it says, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This was, in a sense, Isaac's approach. He didn't want to fight with Abimelech. It's not like he was backing down, letting them take advantage of him, but he wasn't going to fight with them, right? He could have fought with them because these were his father's wells. But he didn't. He just kept moving on, kept trying to the best of his possibility, live at peace, right? He never, I mean, his conduct, his conduct during this conflict made such an impression on Abimelech, right? Because his actions testified to the truth that the Lord was with him. And Abimelech saw it. So Abimelech shows up and he says, listen, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. We see from how you're growing, how your flocks are growing, all of this, that the Lord is with you. So we know where we want to be, which is friends with you. We don't want to be against you. We want to be with you. So let there be a pact between us, right? Between you and us. Let's make a covenant. We're not going to do you any harm, right? You're, we're going to treat each other well. We sent, it's funny, that we, we sent you away in peace. They sort of kicked him out, but Abimelech says, we sent you away in peace. But he says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So we want to make a covenant with you. So he makes a covenant with them. He, did, again, doesn't argue with them, doesn't quarrel with them, doesn't try to fight them. He says, why are you here when you hate me? Well, we're here because we saw that the Lord's on your side. <laughs> your life is testifying to the greatness of God. We see that in your life. That's why we're here. We don't want to fight with you. We want to be friends. He says, all right, that's fine. I'll be friends, right? So he made them a feast. They ate and drank. They rose early. They exchanged oaths. Uh, Sheba, by the way, he names the well Sheba. Sheba means oath. <clears throat> and Isaac, when he named it, you know, he was remembering the covenant that, that Abraham, his father, had made with Abimelech as well. You know, that was nearly a century before. But more importantly, he was remembering the covenant that God had confirmed with him. So they make the covenant and they move on. Isaac was at peace with his neighbors now. His home life is something else entirely. We see that at the end of the chapter. There's contention about breaking out within his home because of Esau. And we'll get more into that as we go on. But this picture, this example that we see here in this chapter, in chapter 26, about Abraham's conduct, not Abraham's, but Isaac's conduct, is something that we can apply to our lives in the way that we approach how uh, the world around us right, in these times that we live in. See, first there's the whole trials and temptations. Abraham had trials and, and tests that he went through. Isaac has net trials, and, they're, and they seem very similar, almost identical to what Abraham went through. So every generation has their own tests and trials to face. You had them, you're, you, know, you might still have them, we're still going through them. Your kids have them, or they will have them. Your grandkids are going to go through them. Your great-grandkids are going to go through them. And truth be told, in many ways, the tests 
that they will face in one form or another are going to be very similar to the tests that you faced or are facing. Be- why? Because the enemy doesn't change. Yeah. Human nature has not improved at all. Right? Sin is corrosive. Sin is corrupting. And the world today is a prime example of that. Right? You could say that the world is going through a famine. They're going through a spiritual famine. Right? They don't have the bread of life. They don't have the living water. They don't have Jesus. They need Jesus. And it's obvious. I mean, we see it as clear as day. When our current administration supports the murder of children in the womb, they're trying to rewrite the definition of marriage, which is coming up here this week, I think. That I don't remember. Then they support the, the mutilation of children, when they have no problem sexually exploiting children for their own needs. right? And the church seems to be losing its voice. It's becoming weak and woke, right? Because it's responding more to these things in fear than it is responding in faith, right? If it responds at all. And it seems to be double-minded concerning these demonic acts. And in some ways it, it, it says, we don't support this. And then in other ways it votes for it. If you're walking in faith, then you are looking for what the Lord wants to do in you and through you in these last days. If you're walking in unbelief, then all you're doing is looking for an exit and hoping to get out unnoticed without too many scars. Your trials and tests that you go through, you go through them. The Lord puts you in those situations. He allows you to go through those things to grow you, to grow your faith, to see how mighty he is, to see how faithful he is, right? But you have to go through this. And often you have to go through suffering. And often you have to go through, you know, be tested by fire, you might say. Often you have to go through things this way. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? The result of you going through these things is giving thanks. It's rejoicing. It's praising God. It's giving glory to God through Jesus. That should be the result of when you go through these trials. See, I mean, we just had Thanksgiving last week. And a lot of people are like, I find it hard to give thanks. I'm finding it hard to give thanks about things. I mean, it cost me three times as much to buy, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. It's, it's, the world is upside down and crazy. It's hard to give thanks. But we're not giving thanks for those things. Right? When we give thanks, <clears throat> we're not giving thanks for the mess. We're not giving thanks for the chaos that we live in. We're not giving thanks for the storms that we're going through. We're not giving thanks for the wars or the rumors of wars or everything that we're watching on TV, right, on the news. 
We're not giving thanks for all the lawlessness that we see outside and around us and how it's destroying people's lives. That's not what we're giving thanks for. We're giving thanks because God is with us. Right? We're giving thanks because despite all that, God has promised to get us through to the other side, through the storms. Just like that picture of, Je- of Jesus and the disciples on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And when they get about halfway across, the boat starts flooding because you know the waves kick up and the storm comes in. And they're all panicked because they think they're going to die. But they had forgotten one thing which is Jesus said, let us go to the other side. He said, we are going to the other side. And he was on the boat with them. And he was so worried about it, he was sleeping. Right? So they had forgotten that Jesus had promised that they were going to the other side. They had forgotten that he was with them. They woke him up in a panic. And he's like, what are you worried about? He rebukes the winds, the storm dies down, and they're at the other side. He's basically telling them, listen, I told you we were going to get to the other side. Did you not have faith? So when we give thanks, we give thanks because in this ever-changing world that we live in, God is unchanging and eternal. And His grace will always be sufficient. And His love above and beyond what we expect. Always. Right? Because trust God. He's with you. He's never going to forsake you. You can take him at his word. He said so. So you give thanks. You give thanks in the midst of this. You give thanks in all things. You rejoice. You let your life, just like Isaac, you let your life be a testimony. You let your conduct in this time of conflict, you let your conduct speak to the truth of God's word. There's a quote by that says, truth is always strong no matter how weak it looks, and falsehood is always weak no matter how strong it looks. So you let your life, you let your conduct speak to the truth of God's word. Because no matter how it looks to the world, the point is, is it's the truth. It's the truth, and it is strong enough that you and your whole family and everyone you know can stand on it and never be shaken. Right? And the people need the truth. The people need Jesus. So share Jesus with them. Stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this picture here. And I pray, Lord, that we can let our conduct in this time of conflict be an example, be a testimony to the truth of the word and for the hope that's found in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we can just continue to be a light in the darkness, in the midst of this. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to give thanks and rejoice in the midst of everything that's going on around us because we're giving thanks for Jesus and the fact that he is with us and that he will not forsake us and he will see us through. And I thank you for that. Thank you for this, Lord. I pray you help us apply it to our lives. I pray, Lord, for all those who are sick and going through the colds and snuffles and the the flus that you just continue to heal them up. Bless all those, Lord, this week in our church. Love them all. This, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.